Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Today's episode features a recording from our Cocktails and Cancelled Conversation series. It's hosted by Corey Clark, and I'll let Corey take it from here. Welcome to Cocktails and Cancelled Conversations, a Q&A web- webinar with Professor Elizabeth Loftus and Heterodox Academy. Heterodox Academy is a nonpartisan group of nearly 4,000 professors, administrators, and students seeking to improve the quality of research and education by promoting open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. We believe that great minds don't always think alike. We are delighted to welcome human memory expert, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, to speak with us today. Dr. Loftus is a distinguished professor at University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Psychological Science and Criminology, Law, and Society. She has published over 20 books and 600 scientific articles, and she has served as an expert witness or consultant in hundreds of legal cases, including many high-profile defendants such as Ted Bundy, Timothy McVeigh, Michael Jackson, Martha Stewart, Bill Cosby, and most recently, Harvey Weinstein. Earlier this year, Dr. Loftus was scheduled to speak at New York University. On the morning of February 6th, the LA Times published an article about her upcoming role as an expert witness in the Harvey Weinstein trial. Later that same day, she received an email from NYU informing her without explanation that her talk was being canceled. Um, We cannot know whether the publicity about her involvement in the Weinstein case led to her disinvitation, but in any case, their losses are gain, and we hope the many NYU faculty and students who are interested in learning about Beth's work can do so here. So before we get started, I just have a quick rundown for everyone. Um, I'll ask Beth a few questions to get us started for the first 15 to 20 minutes, and after that, we will turn it over to audience Q&A. However, you can start submitting questions anytime starting right now, and you can do so by clicking the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen. When you submit a question, it will be received by our behind-the-scenes team, um, and they will select great questions to elevate to me to ask Beth. We do have nearly 300 people in attendance and only one hour together. Um, So unfortunately, we will not be able to take all questions, but our team will try to consolidate similar questions and elevate those that are popular among our many attendees. As always, we um, welcome constructive disagreement. So if you have a question for Beth that might challenge some of her work, put an asterisk by your question and we will be sure to elevate at least a few challenging questions as well. However, we also seek to elevate questions that model the HXA way. So please be charitable, humble, and constructive even in your challenging questions. Um, Note that only people in attendance at the webinar are able to submit questions. So for those of you watching on YouTube, um, we appreciate you being here. You will not be able to ask questions, but we do hope that this will still be an educational experience for everyone um, watching. So without further ado, Beth, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Corey. (laughs) All right, so let's start by giving some background to your work. Can you describe for our audience some of your key findings that you intended to share at NYU regarding the malleability of memory? What I would have done if the lecture had taken place uh, at NYU is go through a little bit of history about my work on memory distortion and false memories. Uh, I would have talked a little bit about uh, misinformation memories, the kinds of things that happen when people get misleading information about some event that they actually did witness. Uh, 
work showing you can pretty easily change somebody's memory for the details of an event that they experienced in the past. I would have talked about more recent um, work that shows that you can plant entirely false memories into the minds of otherwise healthy people. Uh, And I uh, would have talked about, you know, some new findings, uh, a few new findings, things that uh, were only published in 2020 or late 2019. Uh, and basically that that would have been what I was planning to talk about. Will you give us a little bit of information about some of these recent findings and perhaps also um, some of the most compelling studies you've run that demonstrate this, um, the ability for people to sort of take on these false memories and really believe that they're true? For, for that, I probably have to go back a, a, a ways in time and say that um, we had devised this method for planting uh, false memories, very rich false memories in the minds of people. Uh, usually we did it by feeding people suggestive information. We've, if I were doing it to you, Corey, I'd say, well, Corey, um, I had a chance to talk to your mother Uh, I found out some things that happened to you when you were about five or six years old. Um, We just want to see what you remember and or don't remember and how it compares to what your mother told us about. Uh, And then I would feed you a a false, a completely false made up memory, along with some true memories that your mother really told me about. Um, And when we use that kind of procedure in, in our very early study, you know, a long time ago, we planted a false memory that uh, people got lost in a shopping mall in a particular place with particular family members that they were frightened and crying and ultimately rescued. Well, since that time, we and others have done many other studies planting these rich false memories. Um, in, in recent times, we've we've planted false memories that and 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 found that. Well, here is a a kind of relatively new finding that you're more likely to fall for a false memory if if it fits with your current biases and what you what you already believe. Uh, in some work that we published last year with uh, Irish collaborators, um, we took Irish voters and made them believe and remember that they had been exposed to fake news that they hadn't been exposed to, and they were more likely to fall for it if it fit with their political beliefs. It's, it's just one example. Um, early this year with Dutch collaborators, we published a paper um, looking at the effects of marijuana on the ease with which uh, somebody might uh, develop false memories. And I found that um, people who were under the influence of marijuana were more susceptible to having their memories be, be tampered with. So those are just a couple of uh, uh, recent findings that, that extend the, the work that I and many other um, scientists have been doing for quite a while. Yeah, that's very interesting. So can you explain how your findings um, relate to the criminal justice system and how you ended up being such an active player in the criminal justice system as a result of your research? Well, that goes back a long time because, uh, of course, uh, many prosecutions are based on eyewitness testimony. 
somebody gets on the stand and says, I'm, I witnessed that robbery and I'm absolutely positive that's the guy. It's very compelling testimony, but it's not always accurate. And, and for a long time, primarily defense attorneys in criminal cases, you know, had, had difficulty dealing, especially if you're, you're dealing with a, a genuine uh, victim and somebody who's very sympathetic who might, you know, honestly believe in what they're saying even if it's mistaken, um, how to respond to that. And so uh, what developed uh, decades ago was a uh, cooperation, I guess you could say, um, where defense attorneys would seek the assistance of memory scientists to talk about uh, what we know and don't know about the workings of memory. And, and, I would say that uh, one of the things that we do know that was useful in many of these cases is that just because somebody tells you something and they say it with a lot of detail and confidence and even emotion, it doesn't mean that it actually happened. It, because false memories can have these same characteristics. Uh, you've used your research to testify and consult in hundreds of criminal cases. I'm wondering if you can speak to the ethics of using scientific research in this way, particularly to, particularly to help just one side in a criminal trial, um, in your case, usually a defense. And more specifically, do you consider the likelihood that the defendant is guilty sort of based on your own personal research into the case before you decide whether you should testify? Is that relevant to the decision of whether your science is relevant? Well, that, that you have a lot of questions folded into that one question, but so I'll try to answer different different pieces of it. First of all, um, in many of the cases that I've been involved in, it's there's not just expert testimony on one side. It's uh, uh, well, I have primarily testified on behalf of the defense in criminal cases, or it might be. Um, half and half in civil cases, uh, cases arising out of an auto accident or some other legally relevant event, um, often the other side has an expert witness who's testifying to something different. Uh, and in fact, some of the things that I'm often doing in these cases is not just testifying about memory distortion or, or false memories or eyewitness identification and its accuracy under certain conditions. But uh, many times I will see opposing experts who are saying things in the courtroom that I believe are completely unsupported or even contradicted by the scientific uh, evidence. So I think science, you know, the public paid for it. It belongs to everyone and, um, and it, it should be available to people who need it or are interested in it. Um, when I started many decades ago, being asked to be a consultant or an expert, um, I guess I didn't really uh, think uh, about, uh, well, first of all, it wasn't up to me to decide whether uh, a person was guilty or not. Um, I only knew one particular part of the case, the part involving memory. There might have been other evidence in the case of some sort of forensic evidence or uh, some other kinds of evidence, but I 
I was not necessarily aware of a material other than what had to do with human uh, memory. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I can't make a decision as to whether somebody is guilty or, or not. And I didn't think about it very much. As I, um, you know, got more advanced in my career um, and I had so many cases I could work on and, and so little time so I could pick and choose what I wanted to work on, I, I tended to, to prefer to work where I thought there was a, a decent chance that the person was actually innocent or was being vastly overcharged by the, by the prosecution. But that's just a personal preference. Right. So it's not necessarily relevant to whether the science should be used in those cases, but just that you're only one person and you can't do them all. Well, well but also I, I'm not, uh, I don't necessarily have all the information that a jury will have and that has to make the decision about guilt and innocence. Right. Um, so I have one final question. Actually, no, sorry, two. Um, before we move over to the audience Q&A, um, what has it been like for you professionally to be involved in these high-profile criminal trials? And how do you feel the field of psychology and your colleagues have uh, responded to your involvement? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, um, obviously, I've been doing this for a long time. And so given that there are some unpleasant things that have happened, um, in order to keep going, there's got to be some good in this. So the good in this is, uh, you know, I do have to say I'm a bit of a true crime nut. So I get to kind of look up close and personal at these actual cases. I get to, to learn background information. I get great stories to teach my students and to enliven the classes and to make the students really appreciate how important the study of human memory really is. Um, and, and so that's really a benefit. I have not liked some of the, the, the dirty fighting, you know, the, the massive, you know, efforts to get me in trouble, the letter writing campaigns to try to get me fired from my job. The, the threats of lawsuits to organizations that are inviting me to speak. I hope that doesn't happen with you. Um, and or as I was uh, being sued by a person who believed that her mother had molested her when she was a child and um, did not appreciate the fact that I was looking into the case to see if I could find out um, the other side of the story, the other side of that story. So I had to contend with, you know, a lot of unpleasant litigation filed against me and, and people I care about, a co-author, you know, a friend, uh, the magazine where I published an expose and, and so on. That part's not fun. And, and of course, after, after appearing for the defense in Harvey Weinstein's case, even though I testified only basic general memory testimony, never even never even read police reports uh, about the particular people in this case. Um, that's not what the defense asked for. 
I still got a lot of nasty emails, uh, voicemails, and disinvited from a big deal lecture at NYU that I was really looking forward to delivering. Has its positives and negatives. <laughs> yes. Um, so I have one final question for you um, in the spirit of the constructive disagreement, which is um, who is a scholar doing work that challenges some of yours or maybe disagrees with some of your conclusions that you admire and that you think is doing good research? Gosh, that, well, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, the, the first, the first person that comes to mind is, um, well, two people, because they were Johns Hopkins University. Uh, they were um, challenging some of my theories about what happened when after someone developed a false memory or a distorted memory, what happened in the human mind to the original memory that would have once been there had you not tampered with that witness? And I had proposed that the uh, that uh, our memories get altered and contaminated. Uh, these two, Johns Hopkins uh, scientists, McCloskey and Zaragoza, had proposed a different theory about what, what was happening. It, it, we duped it out in the, in the pages of the Journal of Experimental Psychology. I mean, we, we uh, or other scientific journals, it was a very healthy debate. I have a lot of respect for both of them. And it, it, it taught me that really there are several routes to get to a false memory, not just my route, but there's, there are other routes. And I thought it was a, a very healthy debate. Now, that was quite a while ago, <clears throat> but that was, that was sort of ideal. In more recent times, you know, when it comes to the much more sensitive subject of child abuse, I guess the one person I, I, I really admire for her work is Kathy Whittam, who is a criminologist who's been studying child abuse and neglect. She does these prospective studies. They're very sophisticated. Um, she finds that maybe there's a little bit of a risk of this cycle of violence, a tiny bit, but, but, but the vast majority of people who do experience child abuse of various kinds, don't go on to perpetrate uh, these awful things uh, in, when they grow up. Um, and I, I just admire her work. That's great. Thanks, Beth. Um, so it's now time for our audience Q&A. We will start with questions that have been submitted already, but um, people who are listening, you can feel free to continue to submit questions throughout the remainder of the event. Um, for those of you who are running a little bit late, um, you can do this by kicking the, clicking the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen. So we have a first question, which is actually sort of threefold, um, but it, they're all related. So the, it is, um, is it possible to tell whether a memory is real or false? In what ways, if at all, do they differ? And particularly in the case of traumatic memories, how could you determine if a traumatic memory is true? Well, that is three parts, but they are related. And I, I do have to say that um, people, it, it, the memory scientists have asked that question. Um, you, you might think, <clears throat> excuse me, you might think that 
people would be more emotional, maybe about true memories than false ones. But in fact, uh, there is work showing that people can be just as emotional about their false memories as their true memories. So emotion is, is not a, a sign that you're dealing with an authentic memory. Um, you might wonder whether, whether the brain knows would neural signals, if you could put people in a fMRI scanner, would you be able to see uh, the difference between a true and a false memory? And uh, the few studies that have looked at that, I think the overwhelming result is the similarity of the neural signals. Uh, when somebody is telling you something that they think is true, versus when somebody is telling you something that, that's actually true. It's, it's not going to be a way that you can take one memory and reliably classify it according to whether it's true or false. Um, as, I, as I said earlier, Corey, when false memories can be emotional, felt with confidence and detail. And, and so you need independent corroboration if you're going to know for sure whether you're dealing with a genuine memory or one that is a product of some other process. So it's really that you need some other party to be able to, or some other information to be able to confirm that the memory is true. Um, well, yeah. And obviously, you know, the, the, the natural response is, well, you don't, ha you don't always have that. And so how are you going to, how are you going to decide? And we're going to have to, we're going to have to continue to make these, these difficult uh, decisions. Um, you know, I'm just thinking right now of that woman in Central Park who called up the police, uh, called up 911 and said, I'm being attacked by an African American who's threatening me and my dog. Listening to that story, uh, the person who answered that 911 call is probably going to believe it. Because whether it's true or false, it can be delivered with the same degree of conviction. I mean, of course, in that case, it was the deliberate lie and not one of these false memories. But thank goodness we had some corroboration in the form of a, a, a cell phone video. All right. So this was related to what you were talking about earlier with fake news. Um, the question is, to what extent can political fake news shape viewers' formation of memory distortions? Um, and to what extent can politi political rhetoric manipulate memory formation? Well, this is reminding me of, of a study we published uh, a little while ago in which um, people were presented with doctored photographs of a political nature. And, and so, for example, you'd see a, a, a photograph of President Obama shaking the hand of the former president of Iran, and it was completely fake. It had, he never did that. Um, and what we found is that when we presented this as if it was something from the news, the people who were more likely to accept it were people who didn't really like Obama very much in the first place. So the conservative Republicans are more likely to fall for that one than, say, liberal Democrats. And the reverse is true with a, with a photograph that made the former president, uh, George Bush, look bad. So, you know, when we get fake news and be, with social media, 
we get bombarded with true information and false information, um, I think we have to be aware that we're going to be more likely to accept and then probably share uh, work that already fits with what we what we already believe. And that's that's part of the problem. Okay, so we have a challenging question for you now. This one's also a two-parter, but they're sort of related. Um, do you think women seeking justice for sexual assault are generally treated fairly in the legal system? And how do you understand your ethical responsibility in situations where your testimony or research may be used to defend a guilty party or discredit a survivor? Um, well, for the most part, I, you know, of course, these days, I, I, I mean, I, these days that there's been a pendulum swing. And so um, the stories, the stories of women are, are generally believed. And many people are, are kind of suggesting that they shouldn't even be challenged, that they shouldn't be uh, scrutinized. And I, I don't agree with that because I have seen so many innocent people um, so many innocent people who have been accused of things, perhaps by people who genuinely are um, mistaken and not deliberately lying, um, the way the Central Park woman appears to have been behaving. Uh, but so, you know, we have to we have to keep in mind that there's not just one victim in this collection of stories. And, and when you see um, accused people um, who are innocent and, and all the suffering, uh, even if it, suffering of having to be prosecuted, the suffering of having to be expelled from their university and not allowed back in for several years, um, it, it's... There's more than there's more than one victim, and and both of these stories need to be listened to. But we cannot just uncritically accept every claim, no matter how dubious. I don't think that's the world we want to live in. Great. So we have: How do you think we should go about being clear or critical thinkers and scientists when it comes to allegations of sexual assault? And how do we, and this is related, <laughs> how do we balance being supported and supportive and understanding while exercising appropriate skepticism when warranted? Gosh, I don't, I'm not quite sure I, I know how to answer that. I, I, I think it's possible to, to talk to people in, in, in a way that is, that, that can be comforting to them. Uh, if people are exploring whether they, and I've had some of these conversations with women who are trying to figure out, was I or wasn't I abused? And, you know, I think you can have a healthy conversation and help people try to figure out whether what happened to them is something that warrants this label and, and a next step in a process um, without looking like you're just disbelieving them off the bat. So do you mean in cases where um, the woman is unsure herself and you're helping her come to figure out what, what might have happened? Well, I've actually had that happen. Yeah, I once had a, a woman, you know, want to talk to me about the fact that she thought she was abused. And I said, what makes you think so? And, you know, she, she gave me some reasons and they weren't 
They, they weren't. They were funny reasons. She said, well, I had an affair and I, I almost got kind of totally wrecked my marriage. And I said, well, people have affairs who weren't abused. So why is that uh, evidence for you? Well, then she had also talked to her friend who said that her father had, had abused her. And uh, this woman who was talking to me knew that friend and that father. And maybe the father did that to me, too. And, you know, I'm, I'm just just uh, trying to have a conversation and, and help her. Um, but it 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 was uh, it was not a stressful. Uh, it was just a, a kind of an uncomfortable conversation because I felt I felt she was heading down a path that was going to create trouble for her and somebody else. And it wasn't necessary. but. I was, I was uh, a shoulder she could lean on. Okay. Have you experienced shunning or otherwise bad treatment, however minor, among your colleagues, students, or other individuals at your home institution due to your participation in the Weinstein defense for other cases? Um, well, yeah, in terms of Weinstein, I, I do have to say that um, before I went to New York to testify, uh, when it looked like I might, I told my two, uh, my two deans, the dean of the school uh, where the psychology and criminology departments are, and then the dean of the law school, uh, I said, I just need to let you know that I'm going to do this. And I don't know, there may be some people who are upset about it, but I'm just giving you a heads up. The dean of the law school said, all, who herself is a criminal defense attorney, in, in her past life said, all I can say is if, if you get interviewed, I want you to hold up a big sign that says UCI law behind your head. Um, and I, I thought, well, that to me, that's, that's the right attitude. Um, the first day of class, my, my eyewitness testimony class, which is primarily seniors, um, I said to them, you know, I need to let you know that, uh, I may be going to New York to testify in this case. If any of you have a problem with that and you will feel uncomfortable in this class, I want you to just let me know. You can drop the class. There's no penalty. Um, it, I have a long waiting list to get in this class. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. And nobody dropped. Um, but once I got back from New York, um, I did... I did have a very unpleasant experience with a law professor um, who I couldn't even believe that this was a law professor who would yell at me at the sandwich line before a faculty meeting, you know, just glaring at me saying, I'm done with you. How could you? And, and storm off. Um, but uh, anyhow, that this, there was the sandwich lady. So it sounds like most people are fairly supportive, but they're... Well, we don't know what they're saying to each other, you know, behind right. closed doors, but... Right. Uh, this is a related question, although perhaps you sort of answered it already. Um, who has expressed more qualms about you discussing controversial topics in the classroom um, as opposed to the courtroom or department colloquium, the student, uh, your students or your colleagues? So I guess in cases where you're discussing these in your classrooms. Um, I, I, again, I, I don't see, I, I can't, 
I can't say one versus the other. I mean, I, um, it might be that the students maybe are, would be a little bit more edgy, I think, even though the one bad experience that I just described to you was, was a, was a faculty member. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, this is, this is reminding me when I first used to, when I was making my first discoveries on how leading questions uh, could contaminate uh, memory, how asking people how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other would lead to higher estimates of speed than if you asked how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. And I would give this lecture in law school classes. Sometimes students would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, Professor Loftus, I just, I think maybe you shouldn't be teaching people this stuff because they're going to go out and try to ask those leading questions and uh, distort witnesses' memories. And maybe you should not be telling classes about this, this work. But when I would give the same lecture to practicing attorneys, which I did as part of continuing legal education or some other uh, venue, they would come up to me afterwards and say, is there some book somewhere that where I can find out which words work better than which other words? And, and I thought, well, there you go. Um, yeah, depends on your motivations. <laughs> but I think yeah, that's well, and, true of all even, of social psychology. I, I, but I love the ethical question. Is it, is, it, is it zealous representation of your client? to ask a witness how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, if you would like to have a higher estimate of speed and that's gonna help your client, or is that witness tampering? You have an answer to that? No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, the people, it's black, white, and gray, and people fall in different places. <laughs> All right, so we have, um, is there any research to suggest that certain people may be more susceptible to false memories than others? And relatedly consider, I'm hoping I'll pronounce this right, eidetic memory, which is perfect memory. Um, do people who have perfect, perfect memories really exist? And can they submit appropriate eyewitness testimony that you would be comfortable relying on? Uh, there are quite a few studies of individual differences. Um, who is more susceptible to having their memories be contaminated? It turns out that if you are somebody who has a lot of lapses in memory and attention, you, you frequently can't remember whether you did something or you just thought about doing that thing, you are somewhat more susceptible. If you are low in cognitive ability, you are somewhat more susceptible. So the, these individual differences emerge in these studies, but the correlations are, you know, probably never higher than usually about 0.3 or 0.32, um, statistically significant, but, but modest. Um, so we know that maybe some people are a little more susceptible than others. Um, you're, you're, the, the questioner asked about eidetic memory, and, and eidetic memory used to refer to this idea you could, you know, look at a page and basically have a complete image of that and almost like read off of it. Um, there, there really hasn't been much substantiation about that ability, but what there has been in terms of having a perfect memory is 
a, a bit of research on a group of people who have extraordinary personal memories. They remember just about everything they did every day of their adult life. Um, they're called HSAMs, Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory. And they've been studied by my colleagues here at University of California, Irvine, um, in, who are in neurobiology, and a lot has been learned about them. And my lab teamed up with the HSAM neurobiologists and asked the question, what if you took these excellent memory people and put them in some of these false memory experiments? How would they look? What would their performance be? And of course, what I loved about this project is it didn't matter how it came out, it was going to be interesting. Either they were going to be susceptible to, or they were going to be immune, or they'd be susceptible some of the time and not others. Any result was going to be fascinating. And we found that these HSAMs, these highly superior autobiographical memory people, were just as susceptible to having um, their memories be tampered with by suggestive influences compared to their age uh, gender match controls. Wow, that's interesting. So then they, they still could not be completely relied on to testify based on a memory alone. No, and, and, and again, we've seen examples out there in the real world of people who are, are incredibly smart, incredibly well-educated, incredibly experienced, um, remembering all kinds of things that didn't, that didn't happen. So it, it just shows you that all, that all that education and IQ points, it doesn't protect you. That's how Brian Williams can come to believe that his helicopter was attacked by a missile. Or Hillary Clinton could come to believe that she landed under sniper fire on a trip to Bosnia. Um, these are, uh, you know, incredibly intelligent, accomplished people who developed quite rich false memories. That's so fascinating. Um, we have one right now that's sort of timely. Um, should we be concerned about the implications of distorted memory and how protesters and the police may come away from their interactions with one another? And how common would it be that the protesters would remember police officers as using excessive force when in fact they did not? And conversely, that police officers will remember protesters as being overly aggressive when in fact they were not. I think both of those things can happen. And um, both of those things can happen and pe people can, because people are going to be inf influenced by their, their predispositions and, 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 and their biases. And, and so it would not, I mean, I think we just have to keep in mind, it's not necessarily because of a big fat lie that a police officer might remember less force or a protester might remember more force than was actually uh, used in a particular case. That, that would be an easy distortion to produce. And in, in fact, I once did a study um, uh, of, of people who, just by the way you ask questions and referring to something as an incident versus referring to it um, you know, as, a, as a fight or using a more aggressive word to label the incident, can get people to remember it as being more extreme than it actually was. 
Yeah, and it comes back to the motivations, I suppose, too. So there's Dan Cahan, the they saw a protest where it was, I think, did the protesters like break the law or something? And if you wanted them to be bad protesters, then you thought they did. Although, who's to say if that's memory or just what people report, I guess. Hmm. That sounds uh, like it was modeled over after they saw a game, the Hasdorf. Oh, yeah, it must have been. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so this one is about kind of how you apply your research. So how do you make the judgment that your research is sufficiently established to be used in a courtroom setting? In particular, there's always a disconnect in terms of external validity between laboratory research and the specific real world case at which you're testifying. They give the example of um, referencing your early work, how the defendants aren't given these, your mom told us X and do you remember this thing? So um, how do you have the confidence or how do you know that this your research that you observe in the laboratory has applications to these real-world um, criminal trials? First of all, um, in, in many situations, you not only have the laboratory studies to tell you about a phenomenon or, 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 the, or mental behavior, but often they're complemented by something that are more like field studies or a little bit more real world studies. So I'll give you one example. Um, there have been a number of studies uh, done by people who are interested in what happens when people experience something really, really stressful. How is memory uh, affected? And, and in the laboratory studies, you create the stress in somewhat artificial ways. Maybe you show somebody an extremely gory, disgusting film, or maybe you try to stress them by uh, sticking their hand in ice-cold water for 90 seconds. Um, and, and so that may seem a little bit artificial compared to people out on the street, but we, know, we learn about the effects of stress, not only from those kinds of studies, but for example, a study that looked at soldiers who were undergoing survival school. They were learning what it was gonna be like for them to be, if they ever got captured as prisoners of war. And they go through an exceedingly stressful experience. And I, with the psychiatrist, uh, Charles Morgan, who has access to this population and his colleagues have studied these soldiers and found out that uh, these soldiers can make a lot of mistakes when the situation is particularly stressful. Or another study, this was a clever study by a British psychologist named Valentine, was done in the London Dungeon, a, a, a museum where you're walking through and these frightening figures jump out and scare you. And he studied the memories of, of participants who were attending the, the London Dungeon experience and being frightened in this way and comes to some similar conclusions. So I, I would say we're, we're not just jumping from a, you know, a study with, a, with rats, <laughs> you know, into uh, where people are out in the street seeing a shooting, but there's a whole lot of other studies in there that are informing these decisions about the basic processes. Okay, so we have one about how can we protect the integrity of our own memories from misinformation, if possible. Um, this is a, a, 
Well, they're all, these are all great questions, but this is, this is a really good question because it, it's kind of hard. Um, sometimes if it's really important and you write down what happened before anyone has a chance to talk to you, before you overhear any other conversations, some banks train their tellers. If there's a robbery, sit down and write everything out before you hear what anyone else has to say. So these immediate rehearsals can sometimes help freeze the memory and protect it from, from subsequent contamination. I mean, that's kind of one idea. Um, you know, when it comes to the, the kind of misinformation that's being delivered through social media and fake news, Facebook's been trying to, to, to work on this problem, uh, as have others, for a long time. And it's really difficult. Blasting a warning, this could be fake. Um, uh, doesn't seem to work that well down the road. People forget about the warning and just remember the fake news. Um, sometimes when you see a, a method, here's a myth and here's the truth, and that seems like a good way to correct what people walk away with, oftentimes just repeating the myth is not good because people then get another exposure to it and it helps to maintain it. So we, we need to work on ways of protecting people. And when we've got a long way to go, but this is good because it means there's, there's full employment for psychological researchers who want to work in this domain. <laughs> there we go. Positive spin. Uh, so what, the, what does that mean that like keeping a diary is probably a good idea, at least for your own personal memories? Well, that, that can probably help. Yeah, that can probably help. All right. Um, so you're not lying to your diary. Right. <laughs> um, could you share one experience in your defense work that has affected you the most? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I think one of my experiences that was the most, most difficult for me, it was, it, it was a while ago uh, when I was asked to testify on behalf of a man named John Demyanyuk, who was accused of, he was an American citizen who was accused of being the operator of the death chambers uh, in the Treblinka concentration camp during World War II. And he was identified decades later from some H photographs as a, a person who the inmates, the prisoners uh, called Ivan the Terrible. So he's accused of these crimes against humanity. He was on trial in Jerusalem. And I was asked to work on the eyewitness aspects of the case and testify in that case. And it, it was an extremely difficult decision for me because um, I, well, I had a 90-year-old uncle who was like a father to me. Um, he said to me, don't let this be the last thing you do before I die. I had my own feelings about the Holocaust and just what a horror, a horror it was. But I still felt that the consistent thing to do would be to give the memory science. What do we know about 35-year-old memories and eyewitness testimony from this particular set of photos and was the photo set fair and all that. Um, 
And I thought, well, maybe what I could, maybe I could do my own research and I could figure out whether he was guilty or not. And if he was innocent, I would just have to say to my uncle, I'm sorry, it's something I have to do. But I did that research. I read everything I could get my hands on about Treblinka. I, 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 and of course I couldn't decide if he was guilty or innocent. And I was tormented by this. It went on for months and months and months. And then I, I had coffee with a friend who, and I said, it still seems like the consistent thing is to do it, but I'm just so torn. And my friend said, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. And it was just like a light bulb went off. I said, you're right. I don't, who cares if I'm consistent? I don't need to be consistent. And I resolved that controversy by finding uh, Mr. Demyanyuk, an excellent expert, one of the leading memory scientists in the Netherlands, who did go and testify on his behalf. And what, well, what finally happened, uh, the expert delivered a beautiful expert testimony, talked about the science. He even wrote a book about his experience. Demyanyuk was convicted. Anyhow, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was revealed that it wasn't him. It was another man named Ivan Marshenko. And so Demyanyuk was let go by the Israeli legal system. The story gets even more complicated after that, but that was probably the hardest case for me. Is that because you think possibly had you been the one to testify, things might have turned out differently or? Um, I, I can't say. I, the Dr. Wagner, who did testify, I, I went there to watch his testimony. He did a beautiful job. I don't think I could have done anything better than he did. Okay, so this is actually quite related to that, but sort of the opposite. So if you somehow knew beforehand that someone actually was a sexual predator, would you agree to provide evidence for the defense anyway in the spirit that everyone deserves their day in court? Or would certain knowledge of their guilt be enough to keep you away from testifying? You know, I, 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 maybe I could answer that by talking about the Night Stalker. I, think, I believe that the Night Stalker, which was a famous bad guy in Los Angeles um, did some of the things that he was accused of and he was being charged with, but not all of them that there were. And again, this was earlier in my career that there were certain, it was almost like people were kind of trying to clean the books with, um, um, you know, ones that he did do, but also unsolved crimes And so sometimes it happens that somebody is guilty of some things, but not necessarily all things. I once testified in a deposition for a priest who I feel possibly may have fondled the uh, accuser, but did not rape the accuser as the accusation morphed into. Um, and I would have testified. And, and so there's a person who's guilty of some kind of lesser crimes and, and maybe not guilty of the uh, more serious crimes. And I have done that before. 
I've offered that testimony about how is it that somebody can go from how is it that somebody could go from um, saying it was a minor, uncomfortable, whatever, you know, touched and ambiguous to uh, something much more severe and clearly uh, a crime? So this one's about um, whether these expert um, testimonies are actually sort of useful for jurors. So. Is there any work that systematically tests whether jurors who are taught about potential error in memory or false memory become more accurate, or do they just become more disbelieving? So do, do they become better at being able to tell the difference between a compelling memory and potentially questionable evidence, or does it just kind of lead to a general skepticism? Uh, yes, that, well, that, excellent, excellent question. Um, there have been a lot of mock jury studies about expert memory testimony. Um, and some of them have shown that you, you do get more skepticism. Some of them have shown that it causes increased discussion during jury deliberation about the eyewitness aspects of the case. That seems like a good thing. Um, it, but it, as in recent times, um, the state of New Jersey has come up with some jury instructions uh, that were designed to educate uh, jurors about memory. This would be, you know, a, a, maybe a more efficient way to try to educate the jurors, um, not through expert testimony, but through judicial instructions that uh, a judge would give at the end of a trial. And those instructions, which are called the Henderson instructions after the, the case out of which uh, they were developed, have been shown to increase skepticism, but not to help uh, a juror discriminate between a good eyewitness uh, account and one that's not so good. So we, we may need to, to continue to work on those instructions if jury instructions are going to be a solution or a partial solution to this problem of um, misconceptions that people have about memory and how to correct them. Okay, so recent events have brought attention to questions about the proper role of scientific experts. Some would argue that scientists should produce and disseminate knowledge, then step back and allow society to make its choices. Other would argue that scientists should wield their knowledge to guide government, for example, lobbying for changes in laws based on findings. What do you believe is the proper role for scientists in modern society? Well, I think that we, uh, science, it's paid for by the public. It belongs to the public. <clears throat> and I feel a personal um, kind of obligation and mission and wish to communicate science to a broader, uh, a broader public. Uh, other people might want to uh, bring their science to try to change policy uh, or improve procedures or do something with the science for the public. And I'm, I'm all in, in favor of that. Not everyone has to do everything. Not everyone is, is very good at communicating science. So I would say let's, let's find what people are good at and what they're passionate about doing and then let them use this material and help improve, improve the world. Okay, so um, has your research 
ever been challenged? And if people do disagree with your work, what do they disagree on? Or what do people argue against? The Johns Hopkins scientists who were disagreeing with my work on the misinformation effect were disagreeing about what effect this suggestive information and the false memory had on the the fate of the original memory that might have once been stored in the mind and no longer seems to be accessible to the person. Um, And and so that, you know, that's a place where we disagreed. Uh, Right now, people are often saying, um, oh, it's it's just laboratory studies not recognizing that the laboratory studies are complemented by other kinds of studies. Um, And what else do I hear in cross-examination? Well, are you just saying this for money? (laughs) You know, or some kind of like hired gun where they can't attack the science, so they try to attack the the person. I have one kind of following up to that, which is just like, presumably the majority of memories are true, right? Um, Or mostly true. So if the testimony sort of casts doubts on all memories in general, is that going to get it wrong or right more often? I don't know about that, but I I don't think we have... um any idea how much fiction is sprinkled throughout the facts, um, partly because we don't get caught in the memory mistakes that we make. So if I tell you that I had uh, chicken last night and, you know, instead of a hamburger, you just accept my story. Uh, you don't challenge me. I don't get caught. I don't correct the mistake. How, our, our, our memories could be full of mildly distorted or severely distorted details that don't matter very much, except when someone's liberty uh, is at stake. Then these very little details do matter a lot. So this question is kind of related to that. So they said, um, I once read that memories are like VHS tapes. The more you play them, the more you wear them out and the more susceptible to distortion they become. Is this true? Uh, is there more nuance to it? How would this affect a memory someone is forced to relate again and again? Well, I wouldn't use the I wouldn't use the VHS uh, that uh, the wearing it out, but but the germ of that question that uh, that I think is very apt is the idea that sometimes when we are telling about the past. Uh, we do what's called audience tuning. We tell the story according to the audience who's listening. And so we might change the story because this particular audience is more interested in this particular aspect of the story or would probably like to hear it in slightly this way rather than this other way. And so as as we repeatedly tell the story, uh, we might be telling it slightly differently depending on the audience. When, sometimes there's pressure for more details. You get pressure for more details from the police or from a psychotherapist sometimes. And that pressure uh, sometimes causes those gaps to be filled with guesses or hunches or inferences about what might have happened or could have happened 
And then those can solidify and feel like memories. And, and that's a problem. But the metaphor I like, not the VHS one uh, or video recorders anymore, is um, memory is more like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and you can edit it, but so can other people. <laughs> I like that. Um, so how do you, as a psychologist, receive Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony against Kavanaugh, especially the bits where she referenced memory psychology? Uh, I, I followed that situation uh, quite closely. Uh, I listened to her testimony. Uh, it, I felt myself wanting to believe her and accept everything she said. And I had to stop myself and say, wait a minute, this is 35 years ago. We've got to be asking what happened in those 35 years. We've got to be asking what happened in the psychotherapy session where she produced the stories supposedly uh, for the first time in who knows how long. There was so much that we didn't know about that case. But I, I know what it feels like to listen to someone tell a story and, and just want to completely accept it and believe it, when, especially when it's somebody who seems so believable. Um, and, but, but how could I, when I've been for decades saying we've, we cannot accept every claim uncritically without investigating it, how can I just not do that here now? Okay, this one's sort of related to that. Um, what are your views on the trend in campus sexual assault cases to adopt a trauma-informed approach to investigation and even adjudication? And I'm hoping you know what the trauma-informed approach is because I do not. <laughs> well, I'm not. <laughs> um, unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, people who, who promote some theories about uh, how memories operate differently under under trauma that I think are not supported by a lot of scientific evidence. Do you um, want to explain what those what that is? Oh, you know that. Well, I'm not sure what this trauma informed, but the idea that I mean, this is what I used to hear in the repressed memory uh, during the memory wars that somehow the experience is so traumatic that it it uh, it goes into the amygdala and it kind of bypasses the hippocampus. And so then years later, you can do something that triggers the amygdala and out comes the, uh, the, the pristine memory. Um, that, you know, that was an approach to discussing memory uh, back in the, at the height of the memory wars that I think talked about an unsupported theory of what's happening. Um, traumatic experiences. Um, uh, yeah, sure, we can remember traumatic experiences better than uh, more neutral ones, although peripheral details can, can sometimes suffer. But it's also the, the case that traumatic experiences are subject to decay, to contamination by post-event suggestion or misleading information. They follow similar laws. And so, um, you know, I think they need to, that that needs to be appreciated. All right. So what was your decision making process like when deciding whether to testify in the Weinstein case? Uh, that was uh, actually that was kind of tough for me. I 
I, I should say that several years before, I had been contacted by a, 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 a an attorney. She she was Harvey Weinstein's attorney in California. Um, this is when things were first breaking. We didn't know very much. I um, would I, I and I had worked with this uh, attorney before. She's absolutely excellent. And so I agreed to consult with her on the, this case. Well, things didn't really materialize in California, but a couple of years later, they started heating up in New York. And in New York, uh, the New York attorneys contacted me, and I'd already kind of been involved in you know some of the California issues. But by this time, there was so much media coverage. And so many negative, horrible stories about him. Uh, And I was like feeling a little uncomfortable, but I was also saying to myself, you you think you're uncomfortable and you might not want to do this, but it's only because you've been seduced by the media and you've been yelling at people not to let this happen for decades, telling people we cannot let the media decide who's guilty and who's innocent. And so I thought to myself, well, I, maybe I'll do what I did in Demyanyuk. I'll recommend another expert. And so I did. I recommended a fantastic other expert, a, a, a colleague of mine who, who teaches at the University of Nevada. Um, the defense uh, really liked her. And, and not only was she very good in the area of memory, but she also had expertise that went beyond uh, the memory issues and could talk about sexual communication, sexual interaction, some things that I'm not an expert in. So I thought, okay, that's the solution. Uh, This other expert will take over. But then um, Harvey Weinstein talked to one of his other advisors who said, I really think you need to have Loftus come in and do the memory part. And so there I was back, uh, back in the decision-making process thinking the reason I wasn't comfortable doing this is I was seduced by the media and I was worried about would it hurt me and my ability to help other people in the future. And those two reasons did not seem like good reasons to back out of this. And so I said, I will come. And it was agreed that I would just basic memory testimony, no mention of any specific people. And in fact, the judge wouldn't even allow it. I could barely even talk about memory for sex. Uh, and that's what I ended up doing. But that's how difficult this, this was. Do you know why he wanted you specifically, just because of your... I, I believe because he talked to Alan Dershowitz, and Dershowitz I had worked for before. And Dershowitz said, and Dershowitz knew me and said, you want her? Okay, so we're going to start winding down here in a few more minutes, but I'll take a couple more questions. Um, We have, can pairs or groups of people have a shared false memory? And is this an active area of research? Uh, a shared false memory? Yeah, is it possible for a gr- or for two people or a group of people to have a shared false memory? Oh, absolutely. If they're exposed to the same um, sources of suggestion, yes, they can have a shared false memory. Um, 
I mean, first of all, when you in some of these eyewitness cases, you you often see multiple people all identifying the same wrong person, same wrong person who ends up going to prison for 20 years and then gets freed based on DNA testing. But five people all made that same mistake. How does that happen? Through suggestion and contamination of memory. Okay, we'll take one more here. Um, having a strong memory used to be a highly sought after skill because looking up information was fairly resource intensive. Given that we have places such as uh, such a reliance on Google, sorry, that we have such reliance on Google and other technology to provide us constant access to the world's information. How do you think this will impact our natural ability to remember things deeply? Well, certainly when you um, know you can look something up, you don't have to remember it. And I, I, I believe there's a study out there. I mean, the, the authors are, are escaping me at the moment. I need to get into my computer or whatever that shows that people who know they can look up the answer uh, don't remember the information as well. But you can just experience this for yourself when you think about how many people's phone numbers do you not know now? It's how so many true. Phone numbers did we used to know by heart? And I don't we, think my mom knows my number. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to squeeze one more in here, um, and we'll end on this one. So certain kinds of false memories seem to become more common during certain cultural moments. And they give the example of the satanic abuse panic many years ago. Do you have concerns about false memory of sexual assault becoming more common during the cultural moment of the Me Too movement and campus rape culture discourse? Um, uh, well, I, actually, I do. I've, I've been involved in some campus sexual assault cases, um, for example, where somebody has an ambiguous experience, and then they tell a friend about it, and the friend says, that labels it, that's rape. You need to report this. And I think that label and that conversation and that thinking about it in that way then helps to shift the memory in a direction of something that is more aggressive or inappropriate uh, than perhaps it was. Okay. I think I, I'm going to squeeze one last one in there from my own list. I think this is my hostess privilege because I wanted to ask you based on something of yours I read recently, which was, um, is it true that Martha Stewart has spoke salmon, caviar, and vodka for lunch? <laughs> Well, uh, Martha Stewart, I, I, I know, I guess uh, one day she had that for lunch. I don't know if she always has that for lunch, but um, uh, when I interviewed her about the circumstances under which she had a conversation with her stockbroker and ultimately sold her Imclone stock, I was trying to find out um, what she was doing when she had that conversation uh, so that I could learn a little bit more about the reliability of her memory or her lack of memory for some details that the government uh, wanted to suggest that she was remembering. Um, she told me that she, right before the conversation, she'd been on, on a plane, and a, a private plane. And I said, doing what? And she said, well, having lunch. I said, well, what'd you have for lunch? She said, well, we had smoked salmon, we had caviar, and uh, we had vodka. I said, vodka? How much vodka? 
well, a couple of drinks. And, uh, well, there's a very good reason why. Maybe she didn't remember every detail of a conversation that she had shortly after that lunch. And you said they ended up not using that in the testimony? Um, What happened is is the, I think the defense thought the case was going so well for them, they cut the defense short, very short, hardly any witnesses at all, and um, ended up with a verdict that they didn't expect. What could have been with the vodka defense? The vodka vodka defense, you never All right. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Beth, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Corey. Good to see you again. Wonderful to see you. Um, Also, thanks everyone who submitted questions and modeled the HXA way. I was very impressed. Those were much better questions than I had prepared to ask. So I appreciate all the help there. Um, We hope everyone learned something new or or considered a new perspective. If you are not already a member or a friend of Heterodox Academy, please consider becoming one by clicking Get Involved on our webpage. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a donation by clicking Give on our webpage. And last, we encourage you to check out our tools and resources on our website, which provide resources for engaging your classrooms and communities and promoting the values of viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, and open inquiry. This will be our next to last episode before we go on an indefinite break. Our last episode, which will come out soon, features Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke, authors of Moral Grandstanding. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the show over the past three years. I've enjoyed seeing your reviews on iTunes and hearing from many of you over email and in person. If you want to get in touch, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or on Twitter at chrismartin76. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider joining the HXA Network, whether as a member, affiliate, or friend, we welcome everyone. By joining, you'll receive event invitations, our weekly bulletin email, and other special perks. Visit heterodoxacademy.org slash join for more details and to apply today. If you enjoyed the show, also please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.